When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, we are so glad you're here to join us on this journey of discovering truly great music. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a like, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, And if you want to get in on the conversation, go to Instagram or Facebook. I know it was down, I guess, at the moment that you guys are listening, maybe a few weeks ago. But it's up again, I hope. By now, um, and go to at Good Music Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can suggest artists that you might want us to do. We want to tailor this podcast to you guys, and you'll also get information on episodes that are coming up and some special news and get in on the conversation that way. And if you really, really, really love good music, you want to get early access to these episodes, maybe you want to get exclusive access to our After Hours segment where we talk about the bad songs of every artist every week, and we leave it very unfiltered, and we just have a good time with that segment. If you want access to those things, go down into the link, or down into the description, there is a link to a Patreon page that is for us, for the equivalent of just a convenience store snack every month. You can get early access and exclusive access to exclusive content, and we hope you guys enjoy that. Well, wait, what'd you say? So that's a lot of exclusives. It's a lot of exclu- well, it is exclusive. It's exclusively early. And it's also exclusive content. Anyway, whatever. If that interests <laughs> you, there's a link in the description. There everything's in the description. I think there was an intro that also said all this stuff. So anyway, it'll be on the test. Um last week we talked about Casey Musgraves, right? And I said, Ooh, I'm gonna listen to Golden Hour. Well, I did. And then I listened to it two more times because I loved it so much. Ooh. Like, I think, I think start to fit. Well, okay. Love is a strong word. Love is a strong word. I'll say I liked it so much. Okay. It's not going to change the way that I view music, but I really did like the, the feel of it. It helped that I listen to music while I'm driving. Um, and I was telling Lucas a couple minutes ago, I went to go visit uh, one of our old bandmates who lives about 30 minutes away. And, you know, there's a highway that runs pretty much into this rural part of Oklahoma between the two cities that we live in. And um, I was listening to that album on the way home. And so, you know, driving past what's essentially field, listening to this very wide open, expansive, atmospheric album 
that's essentially voice and acoustic guitar and some banjo. It was a really cool experience. Uh, and so I highly encourage if that's something that kind of piqued your interest, you know, if you want to listen to some nice, simple, but good written music, go to our previous episode on Casey Musgraves. You will not be disappointed. I think in listening to that, I probably moved to a seven. Very tentative, very tentative, but it would be, it would be accurate to say seven, more accurate than to say six. So um, anyway, we're not talking about Casey Musgraves this week. We're talking about, who are we talking about, Lucas? We're going to go back to the 60s, and this is a, um, uh, a listener-requested artist. We're going to be talking about uh, a pair and Garfunkel. Is that their last names? Yes, those are their last names. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Grant, let's just jump right into first thoughts. What do you uh, what do you think about Simon and Garfunkel? What What would so, be your first thoughts before we uh, listen to the music and um, and all that? So, I am going to be honest. That question was a legitimate question for the longest time. I had heard Simon and Garfunkel, and like, oh, Simon's a first name. Garfunkel must also be a first name. But I, in listening to this, I kind of figured it out. Like, oh, Simon could be a last name. So, anyway, um, that's just goes to show you how little I know. I don't even know their full names. I know <laughs> that I I recognized the first song on our list as being a Simon and Garfunkel song, um, and then the next two I had heard but I didn't know were them. I know the third one, if I had to guess who it was, I would eventually get there. Um, so I am familiar with their name. I'm familiar with the first song. I'm familiar with the uh, disturbed cover of it, which we can talk about that later on, what your opinion is on that. Um, that was how I got introduced to that song. But um, no, yeah, the only reason I really know who they are is because of that song. I think that's like, the case for a lot of people my age because it's it's the big meme song yeah um, but yes, yeah so that's that's the extent of my knowledge i'd have to say i'm once again just like last week i'm out of five because i just don't know hardly anything and i don't i surely don't have enough starting out this episode before the listening i surely okay. don't have enough to give an accurate opinion on okay so this is this is an unknown this really is. I bet this is a pretty well known for you. Yeah, I'd say. So. Also, I want to shout out uh, Rocket Man Nine. He was the one that um, threw out this recommendation for us. He said that um, they're his favorite band slash duo. So wow, um, we're doing this one for you, Rocket Man Nine. Thank you for reaching out to us and letting us know. Um, so I. And Garfunkel pretty well before doing this episode. It was one of those things when I saw the recommendation, I was just like, oh yeah, let's totally do that. Um, I would say that I would have laid at like at a at a seven, probably low seven, just because I knew like their big songs, but I hadn't and there and I would say one of their albums I had I had dug into before, which was Bridge Over Troubled Water, but I hadn't really gone through a lot of their other records or really dug into their history, kind of learning about them. So, uh, but there were several of their songs that I would say that I loved. 
So I definitely would say that a seven, probably a light seven would be where I was starting off at. Um, I, I mean, Garfunkel is one of those names you just, you, you will hear because it's kind of like whenever people talk about like iconic duos, mm-hmm. like, like Simon and Garfunkel is kind of like one of those placeholder. That's, that's, that's shorthand for iconic duo. Mm-hmm. And, um, but for obviously for the longest time, I didn't know who they were or what their songs were. Um, but then once I started to listen to them, I found out, oh, yeah, I know Sound of Silence. I just didn't know it was them. Oh, I know Bridge Over Troubled Water. I just didn't know it was them. And so that was that was kind of my how I discovered them. And then finally, I ended up listening to that album. Uh, it, it ended up I, I saw a list one time of like the best albums of the 70s on there. And so I was like, oh, I'll take a listen to it. And was like, whoa, this is a really great record. And that's when I discovered a lot more of their songs. And I kind of like dug into like their greatest hits and found a bunch more songs that I really liked. And so from then on, I would say it was just like they were always a band that I appreciated and that I and several of their songs I really liked. But I had never taken the deep dive before until recording this episode. So that's that's where my history of of Simon and Garfunkel stands. Wow. Okay. You have a lot more involved history than I do. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about who they are. So as, as we said earlier, Simon and Garfunkel are last names. Um, it is Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. So which is which? So Paul Simon, I guess if you're, um, let's let's take the uh, the album cover bookends, the black and white photo with them in the mm-hmm. artsy black turtleneck mm-hmm. vest uh, or sweaters. Paul Simon is the straight-haired, um, sad-looking one, and Art mm-hmm. Garfunkel is the curly-haired, whimsical-looking one. Ah, the voice watch. The one that looks vaguely like uh, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, uh, a, I always thought that. <laughs> a chic Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> um, as far as vocals, Paul Simon is the uh, the lower toned, but also usually the main singer, the one that's going to be singing the main melody, as well as he is the acoustic guitar player for the group, Aww. and he is the main songwriter. So he's kind of like the the mad scientist of the two. And Art Garfunkel, the higher range, he's going to typically be singing those higher harmonies. But he's also the yeah. uh, the producer and the arranger. So he's the one that, you know, Paul's going to be the one that's going to bring in the songs. But Art is kind of the one that has the ear to go, okay, we need to take it in this direction. Let's change this melody a little bit. Let's Let's add maybe this part here, that part there. And so they complement each other in that way. That's really good. Yeah, the great the great duos are are opposites. They are absolutely opposites physically. Uh, Paul Simon is quite short, and Art Garfunkel is quite tall. Um, I mean, their hair is completely opposite. Their personalities are completely opposite. Oh, really? Um, Paul Simon was much more of a um, a reserved, shy, but also very neurotic. 
obsessive person. He's he's kind of the the tortured genius. Art Garfunkel is kind of like your um, your charming, charismatic yet also very like alluring, mysterious figure. Where he was, he's kind of almost like a like a David Bowie like personality. Mm. Okay. And then, and then vocally, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum as well. Paul Simon has a bit more of an unorthodox yet um, effective voice. Someone that is his vocal ability is much more in the way he uses it. Where Art Garfunkel is definitely more of a raw, pure classic vocalist. See, I didn't notice the. I didn't notice the unorthodox nature of the vocals. Yeah, I figured they followed a lot from the Beatles, and that makes sense because you talked about them being from the '60s. Yes. So um, the the '60s is the majority of their um, time period. Their last album together came out in '70. Okay. So, um, so you've got pretty much all '60s, and then one album in the '70s, and that doesn't include uh, live records and all of that. Oh, so. They- so they stayed together, they just didn't make music? No, they did not stay together. Okay, I guess we'll get to that then. Yeah. So I'm curious, though, if the if the name Paul Simon is not sounding familiar to you, though. Not really. Because, he, yeah, I would, I mean, I won't say it's bad, but it's, it's definitely surprising because after Simon and Garfunkel, he went on to have a huge solo career. Um, mm. And... I could probably name off three or four songs of his solo career that you'd be like, oh, yeah, I totally know that. Okay, try me. Um, I'm sure that you know the song uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. It's oh. got that uh, – that. Um, I'm not sure how strict the copyright is here, but it's got that chorus of slip out the back, Jack, make new plans, Stan. No need to be coy, Roy. It's got a very – I would say one of the most iconic drum intros of all time. I have never heard of this. Um, he had a huge song in the 80s called You Can Call Me Al. And I've heard that phrase. Uh-huh. It's got that very know. famous keyboard line. No. You would know. I know that you would know it if you heard it. Um, he had a he had a big song in the seventies called uh, "Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard." He's he's just he's one of those guys that just like never went away, hmm. and just was was everywhere throughout the sixties, seventies, and eighties. He was one of those guys that just like always found a way to keep coming back and having huge records. So, hey, he, wow. Like, I would say, like, songwriting-wise, he's on the same level as the all-time greats. Not just for the number of great songs he wrote, but how long he was able to keep writing great hits. That's true. One person can only have so many good ideas if they're not an idea machine. Yeah, a lot of people will say that his greatest record was in 1988. So to be able to say that you made your greatest work like almost forty years into your career, that does 40. not that doesn't happen very often. We just talked about it with Judas Priest, but that whole forty years you said, yeah. Um. So 
They started that, in the he started in the forties. Oh, sorry, thirty years because he did start in the fifties technically. Oh, so I guess I just okay. did my math wrong there. Thirty years. Um. So, yeah, he. That's but that whole conversation will be for when we do a Paul Simon episode because that's like a guarantee. That's the reason why I wanted to go ahead and do a Simon and Garfunkel is because I can't really do a Paul Simon episode without doing this episode first. This is a this is a pre prerequisite. Okay. okay. Um, unfortunately, Garfunkel did not get the uh, the same uh, solo treatment, and that's mainly just because he wasn't the songwriter. Mm. When when you, you lose the guy that's giving you all the great songs, it doesn't really allow for you to have a great solo career, no matter how great of a singer you are. Mm. The big reason why Garfunkel did so well is because he had those amazing Paul Simon songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's let's kind of go to the history of of Simon and Garfunkel. So they were both like like elementary best buddies mm-hmm. um the way that paul simon actually met him was um art garfunkel did was in a school talent show and sang and paul simon went wow he's an incredible singer i want to get to know that guy and so they started <laughs> hanging out and by that time paul wasn't even really into music yet but once he started to get into it he was just like garfunkel would be the perfect guy for me to for me to explore this avenue with mm-hmm. um they're both um new york natives and um their new their new york heritage shows pretty strong in a lot of their songs i wouldn't know <laughs> well I'll, I'll point out a couple of places where it's, okay. it's very uh city is one of um one of paul simon's kind of constant muses okay He's he's one of those classic New York City is the greatest city in the world type of guy. <laughs> the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever they were in high school, that's when Paul Simon really started to write music. And you know how I talk about how the really great songwriters like spend a lot of time writing songs first. Mm-hmm. Paul Simon wrote a lot of songs. I can't. Um, personally identify whether they were good or bad because we don't know them mm-hmm. but i mean you know it's just that's the way that the, the the truly great songwriters that last for several decades and not just a couple of um productive years are the ones that have a long process of songwriting trial and error before they get big mm-hmm. and so they were still in high school when they started to try and find their first record deal. And this was in the, this was in the late fifties. They got a top 50 single before the Beatles even met each other. Him and him and him and Garfunkel. They, they got a song up to number 48, a song called Hey School Girl in 1957. What? Oh my goodness. But they were not dark ages. They were not um, billed as Simon and Garfunkel. They were billed as Tom and Jerry because they didn't think that with ethnic sounding names as Simon and Garfunkel that they would get allowed on uh, on public radio. So they got 
quite ironic. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the 50s, that's probably very true, but then the 60s kind of all threw that out the window. Well, but we we all know the we all know the Simon and Garfunkel duo now. Yeah. They're just <laughs> they're all over the radio, I can imagine. Oh yeah. Um so yeah, they they were able to get a hit record while still seniors in high school. And um, they were unable to write a follow-up hit after that, though, and so they got quickly dropped from the contract. And so when their recording contract fell through, they decided to keep going on with their normal lives. In fact, um, Paul and Art did not really communicate with each other much for the next five years. Hmm. Like After they weren't able to get a follow-up hit, they this music isn't going to be what we do. So let's just go to college and try and get real jobs. And so Art Garfunkel, I believe went on to be an, uh, an architect major and Paul went to go study law. Nice. But Simon's time at college, he still continued to write music, but he just wasn't pursuing it as a, this is going to be the way that I make my living. It was just kind of something fun to do on the side. It was, it was like that obsession that he just couldn't quite leave alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he still continued to um, try and release records under the name of Jerry Landis. Oh, right. And, Public care. and not only was trying to, uh, to create hits for himself, but was also trying to write hits for other people as well to get the songwriting credit. Mm-hmm. And um, went through his four years of college, and was about to start his first year at law school when he decided to uh, take a trip to London just to kind of you know to do the thing that all young people do and you know try and find yourself, explore yourself, um, have that spiritual journey of mm-hmm. just going to a different country and just like seeing if you can make it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's when he discovered folk music. And that's one of the things I forgot to mention right off the top of this episode is that we are dipping into a genre we've never really talked about before, which is folk music. That's what Simon and Garfunkel would technically be labeled as. Interesting. Although because they sound so accessible. Yeah. Um, folk to a certain point is. Mm-hmm. So, because okay. all all the music that he tried to write before this period was very much um, R&B soul type of music, Part, specifically doo-wop. That was kind of like, that was what he was, and that's what Hey Schoolgirl was. Those were the types of songs that he was um, trying to write. But those are also the types of songs that really gave him an, an ear for um, harmonies and for vocal-centric music. Because doo-wop is all about the harmonies, the um, the background vocals. Like it's it's very much the vocals are the most important aspect of that type of music. Mm-hmm. But once he um, once he really got into college and started traveling, and he that's when he came across folk music. And right about the time he was finishing college, that's when Bob Dylan. Um, first came on the scene in the early 60s. And it was Dylan that really kind of persuaded him to go, okay, I, this is the kind of music I really need to explore. 
And so he actually started to get fairly popular in London um, as a folk performer. And it was during that period that he wrote the majority of the songs that were going to be on eventually on the first Simon and Garfunkel record. And so um, when he got back from London, right before he was supposed to start um, law school, he ended up meeting up with uh, Artie again and was just like, hey, I've got a bunch of new songs. I've kind of gone in a much different direction musically. What do you think? And sure enough, that's kind of the direction he was starting to go in as well. And so he was just like, yeah, I really like these songs. Let's let's work out all these songs now and add some uh, harmonies to them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and by the way, pardon me if it sounds like my voice is going out. Um, I've kind of had a cold the last week, so I apologize if my voice sounds a little rough. <laughs> we love you listeners, and hopefully you'll you'll at least still enjoy the content, even if my voice doesn't sound super pretty. Um, so, where was I? Oh yeah, so <laughs> so. Simon and Garfunkel officially reunited before he was getting into um, law school. He also took up a part-time job as a staff songwriter for um, some record company. I can't remember which one and was just, just again, just doing it as a way to, to make money on the side, but increasingly more and more, especially after his trip to London, he started to realize that law was not the direction he wanted to take his life. Mm-hmm. And that he was feeling that he had a lot of important things that he wanted to say in his music. He wanted to experience the the freewheeling lifestyle and that he didn't want to be bound to a normal, boring existence. And so... One day he was scheduled to um, work with a uh, a vocal group and was supposed to uh, bring songs for them. Mm-hmm. And he brought this little song called "The Sound of Silence," and um, and brought it for because it was one of the songs he had written while he was in London, mm-hmm. and or not while in London, but it was one of the songs he played during his London um, stay and received a lot of rave reviews. And was just like, well, let me let me show you how the song goes when I play it. And so he played it on guitar and he was just like, oh, you know what? You should record that song. And and he was just like, "Okay, well, I've also got this friend that we've worked out a duo arrangement for it. Can I bring him in and we can cut a, a demo of it? He was like, yeah, sure. And so Garfunkel comes in and they play that song and a couple of others. And it impresses the label um, executive so much. He's just like, we'll give you guys a deal right now. Wow. Smart decision. Uh-huh. So that was kind of how Simon and Garfunkel officially began. So that happened in like 63. So was that first record? First record back? Um, or second record back? So they the one in, no, they had the one in high school, and then the one that didn't work in high school. So they didn't they didn't make any actually actual albums. They just made okay. singles. So this okay. was, it was their first official album. 
Um, unfortunately, the album flopped miserably. Oh. They said that uh, less than a thousand copies were sold. That's quite ironic. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they were just like, well, okay, I guess, you know, once again, we have tried and it didn't quite work out. But then right after that record came out, so the record, I believe, came out in like 64. And right about that time, something called folk rock started to become super big. It was about that time that Dylan switched from being purely an acoustic uh, player to having an electric band with him. Uh, The Birds scored a number one hit with a song called Mr. Tambourine Man. And even the Beatles were starting to incorporate a lot of folk into their music at that point. Mm -hmm. And so um, their producer decided without telling Simon and Garfunkel that he was going to put an electric backing to the sound because Sound of Silence was originally just acoustic guitar and both their voices. Mm-hmm. And so he was just like, let's let's capitalize on this folk rock movement and I'm going to just put an electric accompaniment to this song and see how it does. And he didn't even tell the, tell the, the two of them. And so Paul Simon describes how one day he was just looking through um, the billboard looking at the charts and he all of a sudden sees the sound of silence at like number 80. Wow. And he's like, whoa, that's weird. So he called and he's just like, hey, what's going on? He's just like, yeah, we, we made a couple of tweaks to your song and now it's time of the charts. And he was just like, what do you mean you tweaked it? So he went out and got a copy and he listened to it and was just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that they even did this. And at first he was furious because he was just like, they did this without our permission. This is not the vision we wanted for the song. But then the song kept rising up the charts. And suddenly he started to become less angry and became even much less angry when the song hit number one. Oh, I would I would be uh, not angry. So, yeah, I mean, enjoyed. to go from selling less than a thousand copies to being number one. Same song. Same, same song. Time. A little bit of a different accompaniment, but yeah, crazy. So obviously once that happened, that's when the door swung wide open for Simon and Garfunkel. So are there still uh, copies of the original? Yeah, you can listen to the original on the first record. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. First record is uh, uh, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., and you can hear the acoustic version. And then the second record... Sounds of Silence, which opens with the electric version. Which, if you're wondering on our set, why it has that tag electric version, that's why. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, it's all making sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in in many ways, The Sound of Silence was the song that opened the door for Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. The acoustic version got them their record deal. The electric version got them their first number one and got them worldwide renown. Wow. And so um, just throughout the 60s, they continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And really, they ended their career on their biggest note, which was Bridge of Troubled Water. That was a massively huge record. I kind of can't understate how big that record was so so 
before we skip to that, I mean, I assume they toured quite a bit. Yes, they did. Was that was that nationally? Did they go international? Yep. Wow. They were they were they were big all over the world. Has has there been any comparisons between them and the Beatles because they sound close? Um kind of, but not as many as you would think. The bigger comparison was was between them and Dylan, Bob and Dylan. Huh. Because of the <laughs> um the similar approach in lyrics. Okay, I mean that makes sense. Okay, sorry you you can, can you can continue. Anyway, I was just going <laughs> to talk about how big uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" was. Yes, yes. So it was the best-selling album of 1970. The song "Bridge Over Troubled Water" was the best-selling song of 1970. Wow. The album won six Grammys. Nice. Par for and- the course. And it sold 25 million copies. Oh, wow. That is a lot of vinyl. Yeah. (laughs) And it is often cited among, like, the greatest pop records of all time. Pop? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if it is popular, then it's pop. It is. Although that, yeah, that record and Bookends, which was the previous record, um, both are not as much considered folk records. They're just kind of considered, I guess you could you could call them folk rock records. Okay. Yeah. But really, they were pop records with with folk sensibilities. Folk was always at the um, at the center of it. It was the the thing that held everything together. But they they got very experimental on those two albums in particular, where their first three records are very folk. It's weird to talk about experimental, meaning moving towards pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, well, that's pretty much what all pop was in the late 60s, early 70s, was experimental. I mean, I guess that is true. But, okay, so... Well, I won't say all. That's a, that's a very um, blanket statement. A lot of it was. For someone like me, who maybe hasn't listened to a lot of Bob Dylan per se, or hasn't listened to a lot of other folk music and kind of stays away from that era of the Beatles, for example, right? Just not meaning to, it's just that's not what I listen to. What What is folk? So folk is typically acoustic guitar driven. Mm-hmm. As far as instrument wise, that's going to be your main instrument if you're a folk musician. Um, just very, very earthy instruments. Pretty much until the folk rock movement of the mid '60s, the idea of having any electric components in your folk music would be like sacrilegious. <laughs> It'd be blasphemous. Wow! The whole thing that made folk what it was is that it's stripped down, it's bare. That the music is not necessarily the most important aspect, but it's the lyrical content. So it has nothing to do with the songs being old and folk tales. No, that's not at all what folk, although folk music can be about that. Really, folk is a, it's it's very much poetry put to music. Uh, Either folk songs tend to be very story driven, so you'll get a lot of great stories in folk music, or you'll get a lot of 
um, philosophical musings. But most of the time, those are done through stories. But those stories are not usually just for, they're not going to be just for entertainment value. They're going to be specifically with a agenda of telling a story, tell something, make a critique about society, um, point out something about the human existence. Sounds to me kind of like early country, the way that you had described it in the Johnny Cash episode. Yeah. Hmm. Um, folk, folk and country pretty much stem from the same place. Okay, okay. And I guess folk takes this this way about the vocals in a more sophisticated way than country does? Um, not necessarily. Okay. Because, I mean, you wouldn't really say that there's a lot sophisticated about Bob Dylan's voice. I think it depends on... Um, on the instruments, country very early on was electric, mm-hmm. even though there was acoustic guitars and, you know, it was it was very common to see electric guitars. And I mean, just listen to the early Johnny Cash stuff. Right from the very beginning, he's got drums and electric guitars and electric bass. And also country does tend to be a bit more tuneful. And tuneful. Yeah, and a, a more a, a bit more concerned with having a good hook. That is true. That is certainly true now. Um, folk music is less concerned with verse chorus structure, but um, there is usually structure to folk songs. But it's it's again it's folk definitely draws a lot from traditional folk um, I was going to say traditional folk traditions <laughs> but you know the classic songs of many different areas of of the world not just the south that's the other thing folk doesn't have to come from a southern um, inspiration it can come from any part of the country or any part of the world to be honest makes sense why they came from New York. Mm-hmm. And you will, you are much more, as far as aesthetically, you're much more inclined to see folk being associated with hippie rather than Southern. Okay. I'm, I'm starting to figure it out. I guess I have to listen to more folk. Yeah. Country is going to tell a good story more just because they want to tell a good story. Where folk is going to tell a good story because there's a message that they're wanting you to understand. That's why when you said earlier that Paul Simon had some things he wanted to say through his music, Mm -hmm. this is a good avenue for it, I guess. Yes, he he is one of those people that has been called a spokesman of his generation. Interesting. interesting. I, I hope we'll get to that in the songs. Oh, we absolutely will. There's so much to unpack lyrically. Those are always the most fun episodes. So you mentioned earlier they didn't stay together. No, they did not. So we had Bridge Over Troubled Water. Woo! Great. 25 million copies. Where where did we go from there? The duo didn't even last the rest of the year. Why not? Because they grew to hate each other. Well, that kind of sucks. Yes, it did. So... The thing about Paul Simon, as genius as a songwriter as he is, 
is also a very jealous and very conniving person. And and I and I really hope that Paul doesn't take that personally if he ever listens to this episode. That's just that's just what I've come across. Um there has always been, from what I've learned, an insecurity that Paul had about the way that Artie looked, the way that Artie sang, the the natural charisma that he had. Because again, Paul Simon was very much his opposite in almost every way. And even though Paul had this incredible um, gift of songwriting, he found that art always got the attention from the press because he was the more traditionally good looking. He was the traditionally better singer. He just, he had more of that, that, that pop star factor about him. Mm Mm-hmm. And so people a lot of times assumed that Garfunkel was the leader of the group. And oh. that, that bugged Paul quite a bit because he was just like, no, I'm the songwriter. I'm the leader. Garfunkel's just lucky to be tagging along. I guess this plays into the cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yes, I think that that's very telling of, of where they were at that point in their relationship. Interesting, interesting. But like in in sound of or I should say sounds of silence, Garfunkel's kind of in the middle of that cover. And yeah. you almost you pay attention to him and you're like, oh, and Simon's like right there. Yeah. That is wow. Garfunkel was always the more noticeable person. Uh it definitely at the time. Now in retrospect. Everyone talks about Paul Simon, Paul Simon, Paul Simon, Paul Simon, because he ended up having such an incredible career after the fact. And Garfunkel kind of just unfortunately faded into obscurity. But at the time, and that was kind of one of the things that was more surprising to find out was the fact that that Garfunkel was the more popular member of the duo. This is this is quite interesting. So. I'm looking at a whole bunch of their albums right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like that Weeping Angels episode where like every time you look back it gets closer. <laughs> yeah. It's like every every picture I'm looking at it's like Simon gets closer and Garfunkel gets further back. Mhm. That's weird. Yeah, it makes sense. I would say that's not accidental, but there was there were a few incidents that kind of pushed things over the edge. Okay. So, after they made their 1968 album bookends, um, Art got Paul and Art got offered movie roles in a movie called Catch 22. And um, eventually, as the process went on, Paul Simon's character got written out. Mm. But they but they kept Garfunkel's. Oh, good for him. And. He, they were just like, hey, we need you to come film in Mexico for two months. And so Paul was like, go ahead. This will probably be fun for you. You know, you can do something that's not associated with Simon and Garfunkel. And while you're gone, I'll go ahead and start getting the songs ready for the next record. Well, those two months had turned into like six months. Mm. And not only was he gone, but he was making it very 
he loved being a part of it and how the director was telling him you could be a leading man in movies you've you are a natural movie star why do you what do you need music for this is your future and it started to really make paul angry kind of the idea of how could you ever put something in front of the band this this be your most important um obligation and now movies are taking up your time wow this and so sound like a fraternity how could you how could you schedule sleep over a fraternity event well paul was a fraternity (laughs) leader so that makes sense oh wow okay there you go and a vicious one at that um but once he came back and they officially started recording Bridge Over Troubled Water, it just it became um, the 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 tensions grew even higher because at that point Paul was was starting to that Garfunkel was doing things behind his back, which was kind of uh, hypocritical because early in their career, one of the things that separated them the first time after Hey Schoolgirl was that. Simon had secretly negotiated a solo contract without telling Garfunkel. Oh, so that way he could that way he could have a contingency plan in case Tom and Jerry didn't pan out. And it really, really hurt Garfunkel, and that's one of the reasons why they didn't see each other for so long. So it was almost ironic. It was almost like a um, a, uh, a a universal payback. Is an Octavarium moment. Yes. <laughs> final straw was that um, before the record was finished, the same director of Catch-22 approached him and said, hey, I've got another movie that I want. This time you're going to be the leading role. Do you want it? And of course he said, yes. How can you turn down being the leading role in a major Hollywood movie by a major Hollywood director? Yeah. Um, why not? But but he didn't tell Paul about it oh. because he thought that if I tell him while we're still making the record, then it's just going to ruin it because he's not going to take it well. So I'm just going to wait and tell him later. Well, of course, he ends up telling him later. And Paul just that's kind of the last draw. He's just like, that's it. I, you're you're behind my back. You're not, you know, your priorities obviously are elsewhere. So I don't need you. Hmm. And just hmm. over the years, they have done small reunions here and there, a couple concerts here and they never officially reunited. And, and no matter how many times they come back together, they always split with bad feelings. That's so sad. Because, man, when they're together, what a beautiful voices make. It's so sad because they were friends in like middle school. Yeah, it is. It's it's truly. Wow. Okay. It's one of the. It's one of those great rock star music falling outs. I just. That's so sad. Okay. <laughs> oh goodness. Okay. Uh, I mean, again, Paul Simon ended up doing himself. So. Yeah, and, and and did Garfunkel have a good movie career? No. Oh, that's sad. I know. Had everything on the movies, and then it didn't 
pan out. But he did. He made a good, uh, good amount of money doing the music, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure the royalties have taken good care of him, just not <laughs> near much as they've taken care of Paul. Oh, for sure, because he probably has figured out how to get most of it. Yeah, and then just all the stuff from his solo career is just right. Right, he's he's set for life. But yeah, they're both. So eight years old, and and you can find pictures of them all over the all over the internet. Mm-hmm. As I as I have discovered through my little Google searches during this segment, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that they're still being interviewed by the news and the press and the whatever, and they're still, I guess, important in they're important to music aficionados like Lucas. I was about to say oh, yeah. snobs, and I was like, that's not and the right word. And the crazy thing is, is that Paul Simon's still making pretty good music. That's like, that's kind of awesome. Because how yeah. long has it been? 60 years? Almost? Oh, it's been Almost longer two? than that. He started writing songs when he was like 13 years old. So wow. definitely, I would say like 65 years of songwriting. That's, that's, a, that's a mastermind level of music. So I would say that he – that's why I would say he's one of, the, like, the all-time greats. I think that he deserves to stand in the same level as Lennon McCartney and Dylan and Stevie Wonder and all those guys. So when we when we talk about, like, the big tapestry of music, right, and how mm-hmm. different bands are related to each other, I didn't really hear a lot about their own influences. Is it just them trying to write good music from themselves? Like, do they draw on anything at all? So, I mean, obviously, uh, pop records from the 50s are pretty much the the standing point as far as what inspired them vocally. Um, I had heard it say also that they when they would practice together, they would like intently watch each other's mouths to make sure that every syllable and every pronunciation is exact with each other. Wow. But, um, and then obviously, you know, Bob Dylan was a huge influence on them. Although, um, Simon loved to lambast him later on. Of course. He, he loved to, uh, say that he hated Dylan when really in secret Dylan was the whole reason why he was doing what he was doing. Um, mm. You have to, you have to say that the Beatles were some sort of an influence. I'm sure they were, they were the band that kind of pushed them to get beyond the, let's just do straight folk and start to get more of the kaleidoscope psychedelic pop sound <laughs> that, that enveloped the last two records. Um, I would say it's it was those early '60s folk groups. Um, Joan Baez, that was mm-hmm. that was something that um, that he has gone on record of saying. Um, he worked with Carol King for a little while before uh, first record, so that was that was a pretty cool chance encounter as well. They both worked as song writers for hire at the same um, record label. And 
I mean, yeah, I would say those were their main influences. I would say a lot of stuff from the 50s. Um, and then all the folk stuff from the early to mid 60s. And then um, and then just you have to say that the Beatles were a big influence on those final two records. All right. Wow. Well, I have one more question. Okay. I think I think you know what it is. What are we expecting to hear in this next segment? So, what makes a Simon Garfunkel song a Simon, a Simon and Garfunkel? Yes. So, obviously, the great vocal arrangement. Because, I mean, really, those are those are the two guys in the group. As far as the rest of their band, those are all session musicians. So right. they. They didn't have like an official band, although they did use a lot of the same guys each time. But it wasn't like those guys were part of the Simon and Garfunkel band. In fact, they used the Wrecking Crew for most of their recording. Hmm. The Wrecking Crew is. Um, that was a group of, of session players that literally played on like everything in the 50s and 60s. Wow. Okay. So there's 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 members of the Wrecking Crew that have thousands of credits to their name. They got the Fiverr musicians doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those guys really were like the best in the world. They were the best, yeah. Um. So, but yeah, you know the main thing about Simon and Garfunkel is that it's, it's them two as vocalists. You're gonna hear a lot of intricately and well designed vocal. Um, passages mm-hmm. you're going to hear a lot of acoustic guitar because that was Paul Simon's uh, weapon of choice instrumentally you're going to hear a lot of very um, deep and insightful introspective lyrics typically you're not going to have a lot of songs that are going to tell you something happy or even hopeful oh you know, Usually it's very um, cynical and um, dark and depressive. It's very much a seeing the world as it is and not seeing it the way we would want it to be. Hmm. And um, really just kind of a, a look into the soul of Paul Simon. Wow. So you're gonna you're gonna get a private tour into his mind through through your lyrics, even when he's talking about other people. Kind of kind of sounds like uh, Casey Musgraves in a way. Yeah, written I from did. personal experience. Yes, although usually not as literal with "this is about me, I, I, this, I, I, that." Right, right. It's it's going to be framed more through character studies. Right. So we're we're gonna get a lot of characters, a lot of different people um, that he's gonna tell these stories through. Okay, well I'm ready. I think I'm ready too. So we'll go ahead and take a quick break here. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the six Simon and Garfunkel songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished 
talking about Simon and Garfunkel for like an hour or something. Okay. So we got to listen to their music, right? Can't talk about the band and then not listen to the music. And I'm talking about you, the listeners. You got to listen to these songs that we're about to talk about. They're going to introduce you to the artist this week, which is Simon and Garfunkel. We try to do that every week. In fact, we do that every week. If you want to listen to these songs or any songs from any of the previous or future episodes, if you're listening in the future, there is a link down in the description to a Spotify playlist. It has all of the songs from every single episode on there. It has these, so listen to them. And if there are other songs on that list that you want to hear something about, we have an episode on that song and on that band. So you'll definitely want to check that out. I think that was probably the best introduction of this segment I've ever given. So let's continue. Let's keep the ball rolling. Well, we can't we can't roll into anything with much sound other than the sound of silence. Oh, I knew you were going to figure out some way to do it. I, I can't. I don't know how to do anything for the rest of them, though. So that's my one. That's it. All right. This is the sound of silence. The electric what? version, the one that started it all. Was there any other song to start with? No. It, it, there, well, I mean, that's this is the one that everyone knows. And the first word is hello. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, I feel like line has become one of the iconic opening lines in music hello dark my old friend what Mm -hmm. a what a way to start a song so i mean i mentioned in the first segment that my introduction to this song was the disturbed version yeah and i kind of liked it actually and you can have your own opinion on whether or not the cover is an abomination or not. I kind of like it. But, I think it's a great cover, actually. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. and But it has a very different feel than this. It, uh-huh. it, it keeps very much to that feeling at the beginning of this version. So when I listened to this first time and the drums came in and everything, I was like, whoa, this is completely different than I was expecting. But it wasn't, it wasn't different bad. It was actually kind of nice. Um, but obviously, I have no idea what the song is about. So... Hopefully, you can enlighten us, dear yes. wise one. Um, I also just want to talk about the fact that this was not only a meme song, but this was like one of the original meme songs. Because mm-hmm. have you ever have you ever watched the show Arrested Development? Um, I've seen some episodes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, really, the whole idea of 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 meme, a lot of those come from that show because they would have these moments where it's like it wouldn't just happen in one episode, but like any time a specific thing would happen, like some kind of like song or or joke or sound moment would play over it as to 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 kind of accentuate that moment. And so, any time that's in the show that someone would make. As they would say, I've made a terrible mistake. You would hear the sound of silence start to play, and it was one of the running jokes throughout the whole show that that's that's what plays whenever someone has just realized that they really screwed up. <laughs> okay, that is kind of funny. And of I course, don't, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, I think they only started doing it in like season two. But and then my favorite use of it is the sad Affleck. When they were talking about, I think it was about Batman v Superman, and 
um Ben Affleck hated that movie and so the whole interview he's just like sulking while Henry Cavill is talking about it and it just pans into him and it turns black and white and you just hear do 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 but it's definitely become a meme of like when you when you are secretly dying on the inside <laughs> um so it's because of that in a way this song has almost reached immortality yeah kind of in the same way roundabout has like somehow it turned into a meme mm-hmm. um but they they took an old great classic song and it to a brand new which yeah in that regard that's kind of great yeah um but man again that opening line i you can you can put that up against lines like is this the real life is this just fantasy and please allow me to introduce myself i'm a man of wealth and taste and and uh stand up and be counted for what you are about to receive what song is that oh that's for those about to rock we salute you oh yeah see i'm I'm less familiar with that song oh i think that's one of the great acdc songs um, but I mean, just if you think also in, in 1964, really no one would ever have the guts to say a line like that. That's at the time, that's about one of the darkest lyrics probably written at that time. <laughs> and I didn't, mean that, I didn't mean that as a pun, but still like. Could you imagine any other song of that time, a number one hit containing that that line? This is pre-Rolling Stones. This really was um, still fresh Beatles. This was still Beatlemania Beatle. Um, there was no hard rock. There was no heavy metal. And yet you have this, this shing lyric. And it went number one. That is weird to think about that this was in the middle of the I want to hold your hand phase of music. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Wow. This this song really signaled a shift in songwriting, I think. You think it sh- uh, signaled or that it actualized? I think it actualized. The fact that I would have said that it would have signaled had it not gone to number one. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it went number one and dominated the charts once it got to the top, I think showed that it was a shift. Okay. Because you don't you don't ignore when a song does that, especially sure. out of nowhere like it did. Yeah. They did. They didn't have the the Simon and Garfunkel name to help boost it. They were unknowns. So did it? Was it the, uh, it was did the it, pure strength of the song that pushed it upward. Is this what spawned the changes then? Were there a lot of copycats of this song? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily of this song, but it was one of the songs that helped just, I would say, between that and everything that Dylan was doing, that these were the types of songs that helped the Beatles decide that they're going to start shifting the way that they're writing their lyrics. And once the Beatles did it, then everyone else did it. But the Beatles, I believe, wouldn't have gotten there without songs like this. Okay. 
But um, to finally answer your question, what's the song about? Pretty much the song is all about the um, the crushing silence of um, of letting things be. So that he's describing it in the song is that he's walking around New York City and he sees everyone living their lives and not realizing that the lives that they're living are meaningless and are doing nothing but destroying society. Mm. Pretty much it's this, the silence is the unenlightened life. Mm. And so talking about to the, uh, the thousands bowing down to a neon God pretty much kind of the the worship of consumerism and um just just the 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 lack of light light and that it's it translates into silence because people are not doing anything to change the world around them they're just accepting the life that they're given them with silence and in the song he is desperately trying truth he's saying hear my words that i might teach you take my arms that i might reach you but my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence hmm. so, so you you talked about how he thinks that new york city's the greatest city in the world kind of person but this doesn't sound like it well he has an idealized vision of New York, and that's the New York of when he was a ch- when he was a kid, ah. and that's and that's the real thing that he constantly goes back to over and over. His songs is this: where did the American dream go? He he remembers New York City from the forties and the fifties, when you know it was the it was the place to make a name for yourself to to where the American dream was alive and well. And then by the sixties, everything had, had, um, spiraled down into moral, um, moral insanity. Do you think that might've been a factor of him being a wee child in the fifties? Yeah. And I think what he's, what he's really saying through the whole thing is that he, he wants to, to have the the childhood innocence again he's he's constantly searching for it in his in his song the thing that he ends up hating the most is the fact that he can no longer go back to a time when everything was perfect huh sad this is so we started off with a sad one oh yeah um and the thing that's interesting is that really the first is the last one chronologically because the reason he's talking to the darkness is because no one else will listen to him. Hmm. He's he's yeah. describing the vision that he's already had. The vision is two, three, four, and five. But verse one is him telling darkness about his dream or his experience. Okay. Well, and the weird thing is, like, this is a three-minute song. We have five verses. Mm-hmm. There's no chorus. But, and, that, and again, that this is a very folk thing to do. This is very traditional folk structure, where there's no choruses, 
There's no instrumental interludes. There's no bridges. There's no solos. Like pretty much it's, you have these, these sections of lyric that are going to constantly repeat with the same melody, but with different words. Yeah. And it's good that it was written to loop. It's not like they did some weird modulation at the end or something. Mm-hmm. So what you hear on the track, you hear actually everything that's on the acoustic track. Because remember, they didn't re-record the vocals because they had no idea that it had been altered anyway. So what they did is they took the acoustic track and they copied and pasted a band on top of it. Okay, yeah. No, that's that's what I'm... That's what I thought they would have done. Mm-hmm. And that is what it sounds like. Which, by the way, they used Bob Dylan's band for it. <laughs> it it kind of sounds like there are some spots in the middle where, like, the timing doesn't quite add up. Yeah, that's because it, that's because they that they like recorded in in a free form. Yep, and so the band had to adjust to because yeah, there are some times where there are some timing mistakes. But they're not mistakes. It's just the way that the original was played. Hmm. That's that's a neat little tidbit there. That would, that would explain some little artifacts in the audio. Yeah, it's not them just intentionally putting some weird time signatures in some certain places. <laughs> yeah, just, some polyrhythms. Yeah. <laughs> we 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 need some odd time signatures in our folk ballad about the darkness. I, I don't know if we're that if we're quite to that era of music yet no we don't need to we don't need to get some king crimson or yes or this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but But, i mean yeah this this song rightly has become one of if not their defining song they they pretty much have like pretty much have two defining songs and it's depending on who you ask it's one or the other right Right. I mean, it's hard to argue against this one because this is the song that literally built them, and it's the song that continues to live on somehow. And in the in the funniest ways, now it's in a way it's kind of sad that this song is used for humor now, because that's probably the last thing that they ever would have envisioned it being used for. Yeah, good point. Good point. But, I mean, it's like, it's kind of goes back to, in a weird way, and I don't know how they feel about this, but Freddie Mercury saying, like, take my uh, image and do whatever you want with it, just never let me be boring. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this this has, the meaning of this song has completely changed, you know, it's obviously it's been covered, we talked about that, it's the meme song, we've talked about that, it's like, this song is not going to become boring because the method that it's being used has changed into something that has appealed to a new audience. I don't know how they feel about that, but it... I mean, yeah, Paul and a person that I feel like would be really, at least I'm sure initially, in the same way he was pissed off whenever he found out that they re-recorded his song and then changed his mind when it went to number one. I could imagine him being mad that it had been hijacked as a meme until he's, his royalty checks started getting big again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. So, who knows? Anyway, let's move to a song off of an album which you talked about quite a bit the past segment. So, moving on to Bridge Over Troubled Water, this is Cecilia. Yes, that uh, that duplicitous woman that just can't seem to make up her mind on who she wants. Yeah, so... I noticed the first line, it sounds like they just say Celia. I always thought that as well. I thought maybe it was like they just put that first um, um, syllable in really quickly, or it could have just been a a mistake recording-wise. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's it's probably either a mistake recording or they just wanted to start on on the one, which makes a lot of sense because you have that very rhythmic intro. Mm-hmm. So there's Which no very... there's not there's nothing on the one before the pickup. So if they're the one, it just makes things rhythmically, I guess, in the mind of Paul Simon is that that could have very well been what happened. Yeah. It's actually a pretty cool story how that whole arrangement was put together. Oh. So they were um they had rent while they were recording Bridge Over Troubled Water. That was like a, like two miles from the studio. And so, the, of course, when you're rock stars and you rent a house, you got to have parties there all the time. And so <laughs> they were drunk and high and just having a good old time. Oh, that could be a great lyric right there. <laughs> and um, oh, man. they uh, Art Garfunkel just got out his little tape recorder and just started like they just came up with like a little imp- impromptu jam with like leg slaps and. Um, like hitting drumsticks on the floor and hand claps and slapping a piano bench. And they just like, he got like a collage of all these different sounds. And just then the they two. Went, just him. Well, no, oh. because, well, he was on recording, but they had a whole party full of people that were mm-hmm. all contributing to it. Interesting. So wow, okay. after he recorded all those on the uh, on the cassette player, he they took it to the studio and kind of started to figure out a way to kind of um, to kind of create a little bit of a rhythm out of it. So it was it's very um, unorthodox way of creating a rhythm track. That is really weird. So there's a whole lot of people on this song, really. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, and so that's the that's that was the gen, that was before he had even written any melodies or any um any lyrics. Like that was the first thing that was set for that song was this was this really strange cobbled together rhythm track of of as the elites would say music concrete. Oh boy. And that's nope. music with a Q U E at the end. Don't uh don't get all music aficionado on me. Oh, I will when I need to. That's for our patrons today. <laughs> anyway. Oh, no, I get very unmusic aficionado on that segment. Oh, that's true. That's true. But I use uh, a lot simpler words. It's it's kind of cool how they have such an unorthodox like way of initially coming up with the song and then they put something that's so good over it like they could have very well just phoned it in and been like oh the cool part about this song is the fact that it's just a bunch of random 
beats from around the house, right? Yeah. And just put some melody over it. It's like the melody is takes the center stage. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have that at the very end, they change the chorus to have different um, different lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that you don't see a lot. And it's it's not just that it's like one lyric here that's like, ooh, wow, changes everything. It's like completely different. I don't know. You just don't see that a lot. And yeah. it's something little, but like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Yeah, this was a this was a very unusual song for them at that time as well, because this was far away from folk at this point. This and is this the kind song of song was pretty folk. Yeah, our last song was almost pure folk, except for obviously, and obviously the original version was pure folk. It was just two voices and acoustic guitar. Um, then you add in the instruments, and it becomes folk rock, but it's still folk mainly. This is just a straight up pop song. And uh, really, I would say of all the songs on Bridge Over Troubled Water, this is the song that most clearly indicates where Paul Simon's solo career was going to go. Interesting, interesting. Good to know. Um, I was, to know it sounds future listening. Yeah, it sounds a lot like um, where he ended up going. So. It, it sounds less like a Simon and Garf. I would say of all the songs, this sounds least like a Simon and Garfunkel song. And it sounds like a Paul Simon song. Even though he couldn't have written this without Garfunkel. Yeah, because he was the one that compiled all of those sound effects. Oh, and he's the one who turned it into a beat. Well, I don't know if he turned it into a beat, but without him, they wouldn't have had anything to turn into a beat. I think they both collaborated on the beat itself. Uh. But... I'm pretty sure from what I had researched that it was spur of the moment of him just going, I'm going to capture this. Sometimes it's, it's just musician things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I did that one time it was raining outside. I'm like, man, this rain sounds really good. So I took like a three minute voice memo of it. I'm probably never going to use that in a song, but now if I have to, I have some late, some rain and light thunder in case, um, it's, in case I need to do a cover of, all nightmare, not all nightmare long. Nightmare to remember. Those are two very different songs. Anyway, or Riders on the Storm. That's true. Well, I think it'd be a little bit more rain than that. Yeah, probably. That needs to be a, a torrential downpour. Yeah. Oh yeah. Man, that's that's a real callback though. Check out our Doors episode. Shameless plug. <laughs> um. But yeah, and I would say also the other thing that makes this less of a Simon and Garfunkel song is that you're not really getting a lot of, this is our one song that doesn't have a lot of really deep lyrical content to it. Yeah. I mean, this it's pretty straightforward. It's about a, a woman that literally just made love to you, and as you go to the bathroom to freshen up, she's already got someone else in there. Which the logistics of that maybe can be can be left to... Um, another podcast. <laughs> yeah, which again, I don't think it ever meant literally just showing how right, right. she she is so quick to 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 turn her back on you that it can seem like the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard one person theorize that um, Cecilia is actually a um, a metaphor for music because Saint Cecilia is the patron saint of music. And that that Cecilia 
could be code word for inspiration, but I have a hard time buying into that. I don't know. I don't know. Because if we're going to talk about the very deep lyrical meaning of some of these songs, do you think he's not going to be like, ooh, I wonder if like changing the name of the woman that I'm singing about will add some cool meaning. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I just, I have a feeling that it's, that this is a straightforward pop song. That's just my intuition and the context clues that I have gathered around it. I could be wrong, but that's just my feeling is that this is probably not, um, Probably not the case. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll just call him up and ask him about that. Okay, sure. <laughs> After hours segment. <laughs> I'm not okay. I'm not going to say it for legal reasons. That's not actually going to happen. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I don't know how to do a cool transition, so let's just go to the next song. Uh, going yes. to bookends now. Yes. This is the other big one that I assume the other big one that people know all about mrs robinson from yes. the red something from the graduate the graduate so have you ever so, have you ever seen that movie i have you ever didn't, didn't know that was a movie but so i have heard this song in film before oh yeah one of their biggest songs um this is this is another one of their songs to have gone number one and um, so we need to talk about The Graduate because it is a very important part of history. So The Graduate was a movie that came out in 1966, 66 or 67. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, 68. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, it's, it's got the, the famous uh, image of Dustin Hoffman and it's the woman's leg extended out in front of him. Okay. Um, so the whole movie is about this um, about this young man that um, is about to finish college, and he ends up follow falling in love with. Um, I guess maybe not as much falling in love, but having an affair with his girlfriend's mother. Oh, and she is the uh, titular Mrs. Robinson. Ah. Uh... So, um, and the big thing about The Graduate is that it is completely scored by Simon and Garfunkel music. Ah. Now, they didn't write a bunch of exclusive music for it. Rather, it kind of was like a soundtrack thing. But the interesting thing is that that had never been done before. The Graduate is actually the first um, movie or Hollywood, big Hollywood movie to be soundtracked by a pop group. Funny. That's just, I don't know. That's, that doesn't seem like a thing we do anymore, though. Seems like most things are now scored by people, by like one person with a huge orchestra. Maybe that's like, maybe that's a product of Star Wars. Well, yeah. Maybe that's a purely comic book movie. Have you have you never seen any Martin Scorsese movie? Those are all soundtracked by artists. Um, 
I I'm unfamiliar with the term that you just used, Martin. I mean, what? think of uh, think of Queen with Flash Gordon and uh, the Highlander, or um, think of um, oh, well, Tron and Daft Punk. Yeah, Tron and Daft Punk. I knew there was sure. another one that was right there on my tongue. Um, again, it doesn't it doesn't have to necessarily mean um, that they wrote exclusive music. Think of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, you have orchestral music, but a major portion of that movie is set to contemporary pop songs. There is some pretty good music in those movies. <laughs> but again, that the first time that something like that had ever been done was in The Graduate. And it's fortunate that the music, at least what we're hearing of the music, is rather timeless. Yes. That this is definitely, I, I shouldn't say timeless, this is definitely from a certain era, but hasn't lost its appeal no it's just because it's well written songs that are well written will sound good no matter what time period you're in right 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 now you're probably thinking oh so mrs robinson was um part of the graduate not true oh very small snippets finally and with the little scat vocals are included in the movie but that's because those are the only parts that Paul Simon had at the time that the movie was finished. Oh, so it... he took forever to write this song because he just couldn't figure out what to do with it. Well, he got something good out of it. Yes, he sure did. But yeah, so this whenever, has, like this it, has, the meaning of this song has nothing to do with the movie, though. It does, but it isn't just about the movie. Okay. But like so, if you if you go watch the graduate, the only parts you'll hear are the little dee 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 little parts, and the and the kind of the the guitar strumming. You won't hear the chorus, um, you won't hear it during the credits. In fact, the song that plays at the end of the movie is "Sounds of Silence." Oh, and it's actually one of the I would say it's one of the most brilliant uses of a song in a movie ever. But I won't spoil the ending. You'll just have to watch it. Oh, man, okay. That can be my further listening this week is watching the watching the movie. It's a great movie. It's definitely would not be a waste of time. Okay. Um, also, it is the it is the movie that turned Dustin Hoffman into a star. So you got to thank it for that. Um. So. So Mrs. Robinson was pretty much just like a sketch outline for a song for several years and then finally by the time they were compiling uh, bookends he he got around to finishing it and it turned into a full-fledged song and wouldn't you know it it went right up to number one and helped bookends as an album go to number one as well well i mean when you put that much time into a song and make it right it's gotta be good Unless mm-hmm. you're unless you're Axel Rose doing Chinese democracy, it's got to be good. You, know? you would hope so. You would, yeah, that's true. You would hope so. Good point. Good point. Um, so what is it about? We we are all dying. So, so most people interpret this as being actually the sequel to The Graduate. So that this song is following Mrs. Robinson after the events of the movie. Okay. Um, and that she's potentially in a mental hospital. Oh, 
Um, you've got that first verse of we'd like to know a little bit about you for our files. We'd like to help you learn to help yourself. Okay. Which, which um, and just the whole the whole language that they um, that they use is kind of like it's it's a it's a clinician kind of almost like talking down yet being very inviting to her. Mm-hmm. Someone that's almost treating her like a child again. I did not get that vibe at all. I thought it was somebody trying to get her to join a cult. <laughs> because the because the chorus was like, ah, Jesus loves you more than you would know. And then all the verses were like, yeah, take a stroll around the grounds. We'd like to know about this. Oh, don't tell your kids. You know, stuff like that. I don't know. I guess I'd completely missed the mark. Now it's not confirmed that it's about a mental institution, but she's she's that's all the clues that makes it the most logical scenario. Okay. Also, you got a nice little Beatles jab with the cuckoo cachoo. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that. Uh, Literally, any time that I bring up Mrs. Robinson to my dad, he always goes cuckoo cachoo. I am the walrus. Mm-hmm. What a great song. Both that is of the great songs song. that have cuckoo cachoo in them are great songs. But only one of them went to number one. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. I would say, though, lyrically, the most, imp- the most interesting thing is when everything switches up for the last chorus. Or all of Joe Dimaggio. Yeah. Which that's where another one of his New York um, isms really dominates the lyric space um joe dimaggio was a famous yankees player and um that was like that's one of paul simon's like great loves is yankees baseball and so so then what's the meaning of that line where have you gone joe dimaggio so that really is saying that kind of how i was talking about he has this idea of where has America gone? Where have we gone as a society? Remember back in the time when Joe DiMaggio was our hero, was our national icon? It was a simpler, more pure time. Now, look at, he's pretty much saying, like, look at this woman now who's become so popular in modern culture, this person of Mrs. Robinson. She um, is mentally unstable, is having an affair with her daughter's boyfriend, and yet she's become this cultural icon. Where's where are the Joe DiMaggio's of today? Hmm. See, I definitely thought Joe DiMaggio was some kind of like faith leader who was like very apocalyptic, and then he just got everybody's money and left. And then it was like, oh, is the final chorus where everything changes up? It's like, oh, the cult was actually a scam. No, I know very little about baseball, and I still know that Joe DiMaggio is like one of the all-time greatest baseball players. I, I'm just not good at finding clues. I guess (laughs) it should have been just a Google search, but you know. I mean, I don't really pick up on on them until I start looking at them. I go, okay, I'm I'm starting to figure it out now. Okay. Okay. I, I guess I'm thinking too much with with my uh, 
cynical metal brain. Maybe maybe not enough. I don't know. Guess we'll guess we'll find out someday. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's it this song is just it's oddly happy. It is, but it's it's again lyrically you look at it and it's 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 much darker and more isolating than you would realize. But that's what Paul Simon was so good at is that even his cheery sounding songs have quite the dark core to it. Right. And the little there's little guitar licks in there. But mm-hmm. the vocals are still like the forefront. Like there's a lot of musical things that are happening, but the vocals are like it. I think that's kind of cool. That, that chorus is just so good. Oh yeah. Well, but it's that it's it's that a lot of times when you'll go through different eras of like a like an artist, you'll see different instruments come to the forefront and as a result another instrument will kind of take a back seat. You know, think about Van Halen in the 80s. All of a sudden the keyboard was like a big deal on 5150. And there were there was less heavy guitar riffs that you'd hear in like early Van Halen. And I'm not saying that's bad at all, but here, you know, we have very in Mrs. Robinson we have very very important vocals. And we have these kind of little musical mini interludes. And it doesn't subtract from the greatness of the of the chorus or the little scatting at the beginning and all of these memorable lines. And I think that's some, that's that's the sign of someone who has both experience and wisdom in what they're doing writing wise. Yeah. I'm just that's something I picked up on. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess we can but move on to we, the next one. We can go look for America, just like everybody else in this. <laughs> that wasn't that great of a pun. That was not. I don't think that one should count. Yes, we're going to America, or coming to America, if you want to talk about the movie. So, still on bookends, right? Yes. Let's start with the meaning of the song. So, the meaning of the song is, is very similar to... Um, the meaning of the previous song, which is just, again, in this instance, he's um, portraying a story of two young people trying to go find the American dream, kind of Mm -hmm. doing again, the thing that he did when he was young and the thing that at that time, most young people did taking some time to go travel, to explore, to find themselves. They're trying to figure out, okay, we've lived in this, in this specific part, of the country our whole lives. Let's go see what the rest of the country is all about. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's constantly painting these pictures of what he's finding, but at the end, he doesn't find what he's looking for. He says, I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. Oh, wow. And then... And then he says that he's counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike. They've all come to look for America. The the connotation there being that what's the main reason people get on the New Jersey Turnpike? It's to go to New York City. Mm-hmm. So they're all trying to get to New York to try and find America for themselves. But he's saying that they're all going to find 
no matter who's going where, they're all going to find the same thing that I'm finding. And it's that the American dream is not what it used to be. And when you look back on it now, it's he's he's trying to manufacture what he believes um, America is supposed to be. Hmm. Wait, this. so so he's writing it as he wants it to be. He's he's originally he's it's like he's once he goes on this trip, he has this idea of what America's supposed to be, and he's trying to um he's fit. But then as he gets realizes that as he tries, he's just becoming more and more jaded and more and more sad. Ah, so the the song is like cynical about the American dream. Yes. Sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, 1968 was a really tough year. Although in a weird way, he kind of did do that and make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like... He went to go, like, find himself in London. He tried to, you know, make it and achieve the American dream and whatever. And I, I guess you could say he did. Like, what, whatever. He, he, achieved he, the, he achieved the English dream. Is he English? No, because remember, because oh. he went. He went to England. Right. I was about to say. I was about to say. Uh, I guess. But he... I don't know. It's it's weird to have someone write such a cynical song about like that, like oh you're not gonna be successful, and then they're meanwhile they're saying that on top of a mountain of cash. I don't know. Yeah, and that's always one of the things that you know was always pointed out by critics of Simon and Garfunkel during that time, is they're like you claim to be this person of change and of revolution and of we we've got to change things this is not the way america's but but then they're like but you're not doing anything you're just making music right right you complain about all these starving children in this other country yet you're staying at the nicest hotel in the city that that's one of the things like you know politics aside whether you agree with them or not rage against the machine kind of put their money where their mouth was Mm -hmm. and they were like they were actively and, you know, once again, whether you agree or disagree, they were actively, like, trying to make the change that they wanted to see while on tour. I mean, you can listen to the deluxe version of uh, their first album, and he kind of opens up with the first, you know, extra live song. I think they do, a, like, Bomb Track or something. Uh, and he talks about, like, oh, hey, this... And I don't remember the whole thing, but it was a story about this Indian reservation. Hey, let's all, you know, fill uh, Bill Clinton's office with letters trying to get this guy out of jail and something. It's like it's and he says, you know, this isn't like the most like rock and roll way to make change, but at least they were doing something. I don't know. It's just. We talk about Paul Simon being such a kind of a jerk. At least that's what, and you know, please don't take this personally, Paul Simon or Paul Simon Kin or anything. This is what I've heard, okay? But we talk about Paul Simon being a jerk, right? And then we talk about him singing like, "Oh, hey, America isn't what it used to be. You can't make it anymore." It almost sounds like he's gatekeeping. Yeah, and that's really that was the folk mindset as well. 
folk music was a extremely elitist group. Ooh. They they heavy metal modern day gatekeepers have nothing on gatekeepers. In fact, Paul Simon had a tough time getting into the folk world because he was not a man of the dust in the earth. He was a, a prep boy from college that was trying to be a folk artist. They initially told him, no, you're not allowed to be one of us. You're fake. You're a poser. And that's also one of the things that Paul Simon will re- constantly go back to in his own lyrics is this feeling of, am I a faker? Am I a poser? Is what I'm doing really even worthwhile? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, he's got a song on bookends called Faking It. Now, that all of that aside, right? All of the meaning and the whatever, and we can talk all day about whether or not he's being gatekeeping or elitist or whatever. The music here is quite genius. Oh, I mean, there's yes. some there's some really interesting, you know, major seventh chord extensions with the vocals and how the high harmonics kind of hang behind and add to this kind of anthemic but very melancholy way of of portraying the lyrics, right? And at first listen, you kind of think, oh, it's this real nice um I don't want to say very humble, but happy setting Mm -hmm. is that, that kind of, that's kind of what I felt, but also it could very easily be this kind of sad disillusionment, you know, that it's major seventh and the major ninth and all of those crazy major seventh extensions can have some very on the fence meaning depending on the musical context. And so it's kind of this really nice tool that a lot of music score writers, which is crazy that we just talked about a song from a movie that they scored, but a lot of music score writers uh, will use those really long major seventh extensions. They'll get into like uh, major seventh, add sharp 11th, add 13 kind of things that will just go on and on forever in the super hyper mega meta Lydian scale. There's a Jacob Collier video on that. That can add to this kind of weird, free-flowing, anthemic, melancholy, sad, happy feeling that you can just manipulate into whatever feeling you want. And it really is so weird. The ear has no idea how to listen to it. And it's this crazy tool. So I don't know. If there's any music theory nerds out there, you probably know what I'm talking about. If there's some aspiring music theory nerds out there, check out the whatever super hyper mega meta Lydian scale or whatever. So it's really cool. You're just stacking major seventh. And that's kind of the feeling that they gave you. So. Yeah. Also, I want to point out that Yes does a incredible cover of this song. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> it's it's on the it's on the it's one of the bonus tracks on Fragile, and it's ten minutes long. Ooh. And it sounds nothing like the original. Because I heard that version first. And then I found out later that it was a Simon and Garfunkel cover. And I was just like, no way. And I listened to it. And I was just like, pretty much the only thing they kept was some of the lyrics and some of the way it's sung. But even then, they radically changed the way that they sing it. And of course, there's these long, crazy instrumental sections 
and it's it's pretty glorious. You should check it out. I I have been in need of some yes revisitation. There was there's some new yes stuff that came out, and I tried to get through it, but unfortunately, I could not. Yeah, um, I haven't listened to it yet, but I had a feeling it would not be great. Well, I'm not. I'm in the interest of time. I couldn't get through it. Oh, I still have yet to give my my full opinion. Obviously, it's not going to be a fragile or close to the edge or a nine zero one two five. There's just so many key players not there anymore. But yeah, that's a discussion for a whole other episode. We have a yes episode. Shameless plug. Yeah, Number but you 18. you should check out. They're both versions are incredible in very different ways, and I think it's a great um, illustration on how you should cover a song. Okay. Because they, they completely made it their own. You would never think for a moment that it was a cover song, that it was a Yes original. That is... That is... Some good and, and the Yes one is incredibly happy. It is, oh, it well, is, it's Yes. It is joyous. I'm not saying like it's even like, oh, it's kind of groovy. Like It is joyous, boundlessly happy the whole time. Hmm. Exciting, I would say. Well, let's talk about some excitement. Yes. I can't turn it into a boxing pun. Insert boxing pun here. <laughs> We're moving back to Bridge Over Troubled Water. I, there's only so many puns that I can that I can do. Yeah, uh, I understand. <laughs> the Boxer, Bridge Over Troubled Water. This one, when I kind of first listened to it, the end sounded very cathartic. Yeah, I I love to do I love to do fake cathartic moments in the second to last song to kind of get you going. Oh man, that felt good, and then get you with the real ending afterward. Mm -hmm. Is it? It does sound very folksy in how I understand folk, at least at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, there's a lot of weird things that they do in the middle of it. That mm-hmm. are not folk, but yeah, the this this definitely at its core is it song. It's very it's very much story driven. Um, again, the thing with um, with thing about folk music again is that there's not a super huge emphasis on rhyming things. Mm-hmm. If you notice throughout a lot of these songs, there's not a whole lot of like obvious rhymes in fact um something i didn't mention about america is that there's not a single rhyme in the whole song i didn't notice that i didn't notice it either until i heard someone else pointed out i was just like oh crap he's right that's genius that's and yet you don't even notice it that's kind of cool like because it's hard to rhyme sometimes i can imagine like when you really want to say something you just can't find the right word to be able to do that, that's quite impressive. There's there's very few rhymes on the boxer as well. It only rhymes in sparingly few places when it needs to. Wow. And there, there are some interesting sounds here. I mean, that you kind of mentioned, right? There's like that big boom in the distance. There's mm-hmm. like mariachi trumpets or something. And then there's this low brass, I want to say it's almost like a tuba sound. It's weird, and it'll hit the like the third of the chord. It'll mm-hmm. sound really out of place until they change chords. 
uh, which I don't know. We can deliberate over whether or not that was a good musical decision, but it was a musical decision that was consciously made. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't noticed it as a bad thing, so. Well, then there you go. Maybe maybe it was just me. Yeah. Just like, mm, that's out of bait. Uh, place. But yeah. Um. So yeah, the boxer. This way before the rest of the writing session. This was the first thing that was written for Bridge Over Troubled Water. When you say way and before, how way before? Like it was released as a single almost a year before the album came out. Okay. <laughs> wow. And I mean, it did very well. It went up to number seven. That is pretty good. But um, yeah, this was this was definitely the beginning of the writing process for that record. So it shows kind of where the headspace was. A lot of people see this as one of the signs that um, Simon and Garfunkel were probably not going to last much longer. Effectively, people weren't thinking it at the time, but kind of looking back, they they look back and go, maybe this this was a key of of the boxer at the end saying, I am leaving, I am leaving. Pretty much the whole point of the story is about someone that has fought for everything their whole life. Really, there's nothing to do with boxing until the final verse where he says in the clearing stands a boxer. Pretty much the whole time he's describing a person, and he did say that this is pretty autobiographical of just someone that has has tried over and over and over again. He really did before he got big with Simon and Garfunkel. The number of times he tried to get a record deal and failed miserably or tried to get a hit record for someone else, it's, it's amazing his tenacity and his determination. He One thing you can say about Paul Simon is that he is someone that never gives up. He will keep getting better and keep trying something until he wins. He's a boxer that goes the distance. Hmm. Yeah. But he's saying at the end that the boxer is going to leave, that he's done fighting. Or so he says, but then it says at the end that the boxer still remains. So some people like to say that the I am leaving line is a is a clue to the listeners that I'm leaving Simon and Garfunkel. Which, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. You can kind of read into that whatever you want. He didn't really but, leave, though. Um, I mean, I would say that he left Garfunkel. Garfunkel, yes, wanted to do movies, but you know, it was kind of Paul was the one. I was just like, well, who needs you? I'll go off and do my own thing. Man, you got to love that. That final chorus. Oh, yeah. And just that 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 refrain of the lie, lie, lie. That's mm -hmm. kind of like become like besides the hello darkness line. That's become like the iconic musical moment in in their discography like that was a song i had never heard this song before but when that chorus came out i was just like oh i've heard that somewhere yeah i kind of have that feeling too maybe it's just written well or maybe it really is just all over the place mm -hmm. um originally those were not supposed to be just scat sounds he's he put them as placeholders because he wanted to come up with something else and then he didn't find anything better so he was just like oh i'll just I guess I'll just keep them as lie, 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 lie. Well, it worked. 
And it really does kind of crescendo into this fake catharsis. Mm-hmm. With the it's a beautiful moment. And the tuba coming in and it getting more intense and whatever. And just like, ah, oh, sadness, rainfall in the that, middle of the street in New York. That cannon blast snare. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which that was created by their the drummer um, hitting it as hard as he can while in an echoed um, stairwell. Wait. I think this was before John Bonham thought to use it for When the Levee Breaks. Yeah, it would have been, because this would have been recorded in 69. Nice. But, yeah, it's it's a it's a beautifully constructed song, but it is also the one that they probably had to work on the hardest over any other ones. Reports say that they logged 100 hours of studio time just on this one song. Oh, my goodness. So because like any other song in their discography, yes, probably combined. Combined. Well, no, that's probably not true. I was about to say, uh, wow. <laughs> I would say combined in comparison to any other song on the album. Hey, sometimes you just gotta put in the work. Yeah, it certainly. Did. And I mean, it definitely shows that it was a song that worked on because of all of the weird sounds that are going on through it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes if you just want to add a little part here or there, it doesn't take more than like five minutes. Just track it. Not when you've got two people that are not on good terms with each other. That's true. And are fighting about each other about every single little decision. Garfunkel doesn't seem like a that kind of guy to me, though. But I guess he he was he wasn't he wasn't unless he was provoked. But he he did have a nasty side that would come out whenever Paul would push him too far. Okay. But right. he he was the more he was the more sensitive member of the band as far as like sensitive of other people's feelings. Uh-huh. But he he did have a nasty side to him if you gave him reason to show it. That's fair. It it took two to tango. Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing that Garfunkel knew is he knew all of Paul Simon's weaknesses. And so when <laughs> if he saw a need to exploit one of those weaknesses, he took it. Wow. That's that this is sounding quite uh, toxic. Yes, it really was. Not not a not a good time. But I mean, haven't we seen time and time again in other episodes about how the toxic relationships kind of end up turning into the most beautiful moments in some musically w- weird way, yeah. That just it doesn't make any sense, but in this case it does. Adversity yeah. breeds creativity and beauty. I don't. I don't know if the it should be quoted like that <laughs> in this context, but it seems that that would be correct. Some of the like Beatles' best work was made when they hated each other. Look at Fleetwood Mac's "Rumors," two divorces simultaneously happening within the group, and they made their best record. Look at the Wall when when it was. Um, 
Roger Waters against the rest of the band. Yeah. 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 Okay. It doesn't always, because sometimes you get a St. Anger situation. Well, in that type of situation, they kind of had some other things going on. Yeah, but white workout that we're also yeah, but a big part of it was a lot of personnel issues. There's a reason why there was a therapist in in the band at that time. They they lost one of their greatest members, which all of their members are one of their greatest members. They didn't lose him; they pushed him out intentionally. Yeah. Okay. Well, he finally decided he had enough. James got out of rehab. So the new soberness didn't help. They were trying to be new metal because that was the thing that was happening. Nothing really worked out in their favor. But anyway, that's a that's an episode for another time. Um, in fact, we have two Metallica episodes. Shameless plug number two hundred forty seven. Uh, let's move on to our final song. Yes, our actual cathartic moment. We are actually going to talk about the title song of Bridge Over Troubled Water. What's that song called? Gee, I wonder. <laughs> yes, we're talking about Bridge Over Trouble. I would say the other song that could be um, their defining song. It's definitely their best-selling song. Like I said earlier, it was the best-selling song of 1970. Um, obviously, that means it went to number one. So they had three number ones total, and all we talked about all three of them on this episode. Mm-hmm. Which is impressive for a group that only had five albums. Oh, wow. Okay. So Technically a- six if you counted The Graduate, but there wasn't any new material on it. Man, so you're telling me if I really tried, I could listen to every single one of their songs? Yes, their ranked playlist is less than three hours long. Ooh. I had it I had it real nice, except for that I also had a very meaty biography to listen to. <laughs> okay, yeah, good point. Very meaty. Um, but... Yeah, Bridge Over Troubled Water. This, so this is actually Art Garfunkel as the lead vocalist. Oh. So this is the first song in the set where he is gets to have a turn singing lead on a song. And boy, does he take advantage of it. What a beautiful performance. He does not have the, the real like edge to his voice that you'd expect no it's it's very very pure yes like when i when i was listening to this the first time i honestly thought it was simon nope and of course i didn't know which was which i just thought it was the short guy with dark hair (laughs) but yeah man yeah you're right he really does take advantage of it and we got a piano here which is new yeah, this was definitely gospel-inspired. When mm. Paul Simon wrote it, um, he automatically realized that he was using gospel chords, and he was just like, well, this isn't going to work with an acoustic guitar. So he actually got like a legitimate gospel piano player to come in and track the song. So is Paul even on this track? Yeah. Oh. He does. He comes in with the um, with the background vocals on the third verse, the Ceylon Silver Girl. Ah. Uh. And then, you know, he so, is playing something. Yeah, which he, that had happened before. Usually uh, Art would get like one or two songs per record to do a lead on. 
But this was the first time that he got to sing lead on like the big song of an album. At the time that he wrote it, Paul Simon realized that this was the best song that he ever wrote. Oh. Like he said that he said that he actually cried after he wrote it. Because he was just like, oh my gosh, this that this touches me personally. And he also instantly realized that he could not sing this song, that he had to give it to Art, and that kind of irritated him. Oh boy. But he was just like, but it's it's what I have to do for this song. This song will not work if I sing it. And so he gave it to him, and he's just like, hey, I've got this song. I really want you to sing it. And originally, Garfunkel told him no, because... Garfunkel was trying to be really nice and say, this is an incredible song. You wrote it. You deserve to sing this. And the way that Paul took it was this song's not good enough for me to sing and was rejecting it. And it made Paul furious. Hmm. And so finally Gar was like, okay, okay, I'll sing it. But like Paul, like never got over that. Which was again just showing that the the bitterness and hatred for each other was starting to become irrational. To where it was just like it just it was doomed at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the point of no return. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's hard to argue that Paul was right about this being his best song. Yeah. This no. is it's this is one. one of those songs that has like lived on also this is another song i feel like has kind of become immortal in the fact that it's been covered by literally everybody really oh yeah this is a song that i heard so many times by so many different people without realizing it was a simon and garfunkel song i have heard this phrase i feel like i've heard this chorus maybe before this episode maybe that's all I can say. Yeah, like I always assumed that this was like a like a gospel or a jazz standard. And so when I saw that Simon and Gar, I just I thought that they were just one of the people that did a version of it. And I was shocked to learn that Paul Simon wrote this song. Because it's so mature. This is such mm-hmm. a this is the this is the song that's written by a seasoned well skilled songwriter yeah you don't write this when you're first learning how to write or even when you're in the middle season of writing when you're in your adventurous and like oh let's try this let's try that this is a song that like once you've become like part of the elite songwriting group you can write a song like this well unless you're aerosmith you know uh, then you, what then you write uh, you write uh, what's it called What's the one that he wrote when he was 17? Oh, Dream On. Dream On. It's not it's not necessarily of this caliber, but it's still impressive considering his age. Yeah. But I I I get what you mean. It's like they're five albums in. And it's not like they had, you know, the longest of career. It was six years. But here we are. Bridge over troubled water. Everyone's covered it. And like you said, it is really mature. And I guess the meaning of it is very uh, hypocritical, from what I can tell. Which let's actually talk about the meaning of it. No, I would actually say that this is a pure song. This, 
the whole the whole meaning of this song is about unconditional love. I will be the bridge over your troubled water. Right, right, right. The 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 assumption is that he was singing about his newly um married wife. Oh. Because she she was his bridge over troubled water because he was always troubled water and she was kind of the person that always brought him into like back into the world of just going it's okay you're gonna be fine here go do something that makes you feel normal you know you can do this you've done it before like she was the person that like was his rock and he sings about a song or he writes a song about unconditional love and then gets mad at his bandmate and best friend of so many years because he that, doesn't want to sing. When you're talking contextually, yes, but there's no there's no hypocrisy in the lyrics themselves. Not in the way like with America or with um with Mrs. Robinson or kind of where there's where this this cynicism. This is a rare moment of just like pure love from Mr. Simon. And that just sounds so terrible to say, but when you look at all those songs, it really is true. Hmm. Well, yeah. I am and, I am convinced that this is the true cathartic moment. It's I mean, yeah. Nice when, it gets, when, it, when it gets that big point at the end, if you don't get chills down your spine, then I don't know what's going to do it for you. So, it's kind of an epilogue. We did kind of we did kind of like a main set and then an epilogue this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this is actually the song that opens the album. That's odd. Which I mean, that's just that is what you did back in that in those days. You yeah, whatever your whatever your big single is, you gotta you gotta put it at the beginning because that's what's gonna make people buy the record. But it also was very unconventional for this to be a single because they didn't edit it for radio. It was it was five and a half minutes. And it was one of the few times that they said, we're going to play it as is, and it still soared to number one. Stayed five and a half minutes? Yeah. Well, it's only five on Spotify. Oh, well, same thing. I was just guesstimating. I knew okay. it was five-something. Um... And it stayed number one, I believe, six consecutive weeks. Ooh, that is nice. That's huge. That is very, very nice. Like, this song did gangbusters when it came out. Lucas, I bet if you wrote music, it could it could go to number one for six weeks. Oh, you're so kind. I'm just, I'm just excited to hear the Lucas Christman solo album. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Well, with that, let's move to our next segment. Yes, we'll go ahead and take another break. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Simon and Garfunkel. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about Simon and Garfunkel. We just got finished talking about the six songs for our set. Just as a reminder, those songs were The Sound of Silence, Cecilia, Mrs. Robinson, America, 
The Boxer, and Bridge Over Troubled Water. The way you can listen to those songs is there's a link in the description of the episode. Takes you to the Spotify playlist. Please go check out these songs, even if you've heard them all before. Hearing them in this particular order, I guarantee you'll get a fresh experience out of it. So now it's time to wrap things up and to give our final thoughts. So, Grant, you started off at a five. You pretty much knew nothing about Simon and Garfunkel. Where do you stand now? Well, I definitely know something about them, right? Um, (laughs) And I liked all these songs. Some of them I liked more than others, and that's not to say that some of them were bad, right? I'd have to say that both of the bookend songs were definitively my favorite songs, right? Mm. I'm I'm going to target my extra listening on bookends because it's very hard to choose between Mrs. Robinson and America. I mean, at the start of this recording, I was thinking, oh, it's definitely Mrs. Robinson. And then partway through the first segment, we're like, oh, it's definitely America. And I was like, I can't decide. Uh, I have to say probably just because of the of the interesting uh, music theory nature of it and the way that it makes me feel uh, America, just because it's, kind of, it's just kind of a weird emotion about it. Uh, that's probably going to be my favorite one. And I do kind of like the disillusionment songs, like no matter what it is, if it's a disillusionment song, I'm probably, I'm going to like it. You know, I'm just, I'm very simple like that. Um, and yeah, it, I, I liked our little dip into folk music. It wasn't what I expected. I didn't, I didn't expect folk music to sound anything like this. It sounds oddly like Beatlemania pop soul, something, you know, kind of country. It, 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 it it was completely unexpected, pleasantly surprised. I hope we revisit this genre in the future. Oh, we will. Uh, good, good, good. Yeah, I, I, I think I'll become a become an, a good, a avid appreciator of the folk music genre. It'll be a folky. Uh, I don't, I don't know about that. It'll, it'll <laughs> take a little. It'll take quite a few episodes before we get to that point. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I, America's my favorite. I. I can't put myself at a seven. I only know these six songs, right? Uh, but I do like all of them. I'd say a high six. You know, six going on seven, right? I definitely appreciate them. You know, let's let's put uh, Paul Simon's personality aside, right? Uh, great musicians, right? Simon's a great writer. Garfunkel's a great musician and a great arranger. What he did, a great singer. Right, and he's a great singer, right? We just talked about that on our final song. And so um, their tightness, their musicality, their technicality, um, I think everything combined, you can't not say that, you know, there's a reason they're one of the biggest groups of all time, right? They're, they're definitely, it makes sense why they are so big. So um, that is my final thought, Lucas. All right. Well, once again, I want to say thank you to the rocket man for um, suggesting this to us for giving me a a reason to go ahead and finally do an episode on this group. Um, I would say that I'm sitting probably I've gone up from a seven to an eight. Um, I don't think that just the nature of their music, they would probably rise higher than that for me, but um I think finally understanding the lyrical content more thoroughly 
and understanding their story. I think it's such a fascinating story. Their rise to power, the fact that they had a had a hit when they were 17 years old in high school and then serendipitously somehow found themselves back together and that the the fact that the sound of silence like kept paying off for them in increasingly fortuitous ways um i just i think it's so interesting and it really does add a a context and an extra layer of enjoyment to the songs when you kind of know what they were going through and how they got there so um and I just I found a lot more songs of theirs that I like that I would definitely not mind talking about again in the future in a volume two. So um, this was a very fun episode. Thank you, Rocket Man, for um, suggesting it. And I would have to say my favorite. This is kind of hard. Um. Man, Mrs. Robinson is just so fun. It's so singable. Yet, I th- the boxer is the one that I feel like kind of like resonates with me the most. Mm-hmm. I think I think I got to go with the boxer. So okay, so that's it's, that's it, my pick. It does have a nice a nice flow to it. So I am not gonna I am not gonna hound you for that. Now, do you know whose um favorite song is Mrs. Robinson? Is Harry. Harry. Yeah. <laughs> he yep. can sing every single word of this song. And I'm gonna get it on video and send it to you. Because it's oh, incredible. No. <laughs> I'll just that I'll might... just get the, I'll just get the chorus because it's hilarious. That the way he ended the way he moves his mouth to say the words is awesome. <laughs> he he really loved Simon and Garfunkel. He thought that they were really cool. I heard him the other day going, you! like, Because he likes to write his own songs. Mm-hmm. And so he'll just have like little songwriting sessions when he's playing by himself. I'll just hear him go, you are the sound of silence! You are the sound of silence! <laughs> Oh man, it's hilarious. He also really loved America. So good, good. And then uh, Callie's pick. She also said that she loved Mrs. Robinson the most. I mean, I would say it's pop wise. I think it's the most accessible thing they probably ever wrote. Hook wise, probably the strongest. But let's also talk about the ranking on the ranked playlist. In case you didn't know, I I rank or at least I try to rank an artist's entire discography. It kind of depends on how much I can do. It was a piece of cake with Simon and Garfunkel. Two hours and 59 minutes of music. Pretty and strong that's even, two hours, I bet. And yeah. Um, that's even like digging for all of the obscurities and B-sides. Like I pulled out everything that I could find. And like with the Phil Collins, I didn't play in this, but the six that I picked did end up being the top six. <laughs> wow. And the way that that worked out was we had um, Cecilia, America, Mrs. Robinson, The Sound of Silence, The Boxer, and Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's very odd that neither The Sound of Silence or Mrs. Robinson are number one. 
to me, I just think that Bridge Over Troubled Water is the best written song. I mean, the writer himself did cry when he wrote it. So Yeah. And he said it was you. the best song he ever wrote. So, I mean, can you really pick anything else? It, it's a number it, one hit. It's a defining song. It's got the legacy power attached to it. It's true. But, I mean, really, I would say the, that the, that top four, you could make a good argument for being number one. It's It's pretty close between those four. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, remember, we listen to your suggestions. As you have seen in this episode, the whole reason we did it was because someone asked us to. So let us know what songs you want us to talk about in a future episode. We try and do it once a month, almost at a week, and that would not have been true. <laughs> um, so the best way to let us know what artists you want us to talk about is to get a hold of us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, that's also the best place for you to catch up on what episodes are coming out. And speaking of which, we have new episodes every single week, Monday at midnight. Next week is going to be another one of our music history episodes. I already pretty much spoiled in the last music history one what it's going to be about. So um, if you liked our first episode about Mozart opera, then you'll want to make sure that you tune in. If you missed it or you're like, man, opera's not my thing, still recommend you check it out because a lot of the history is really cool as well. Plus, you'll get to hear us deconstruct the story, which is also pretty cool. Yes, yes. Um, make sure that you check out both links in the description of the episode. One of them takes you to the Spotify playlist. We've talked about that a bunch, so I won't go over that again. But the other one takes you to our Patreon page, which contains... Uh, our exclusive segment our bad music podcast section don't forget that at the end of the year event where we have a tournament to see what is the worst song that we listen to this year so i would say it's worth it just for that <laughs> yeah yeah so we're gonna figure out what simon and garfunkel's entry into the competition is gonna be so um, make sure you tune in for that if you want to check it out and leave us a review let us know um, what you think of the podcast and we'll see you guys next time I'm Lucas I'm Grant keep on listening to good music <laughs>